Good morning, everyone. Um, Scott wanted me to just to do a brief pitch uh, for CORE. Um, easy for me to do. I am, I am just so convinced that um, explicit membership is so biblical. Um, and I want to apologize for my voice. And you could pray for me while I preach because it's been a weird thing. I'm 61 now. And I've noticed as you get older, you experience new things all the time. <laughs> so the latest new thing is my lungs leak from like 10.30 to 11.30, and then it goes away. So I end up with this sort of uh, hack, I guess you would say. So if that happens while I'm preaching, you know what that is, okay? I don't know what it is, but it, that's what it is. Weird, 10.30 to 11.30. Um, but uh, we've been here at Wren for, I don't know, it's, it's gone so quickly, uh, like seven or eight years. And I was an elder a couple years ago for, for four years prior to that, took a couple years off, back on the council again. Really excited to do that. I love this church. I love uh, my fellow elders are just good, good men, just, just enjoyable to serve with. Um, and so before... We came to Wren, we were at a church called Christ Covenant Church, which no longer exists, but that was in Fall River. Um, I was the lead pastor there for about eight years, um, driving for FedEx and preaching every week, and that was exhausting, but, uh, but it, was a, it was a blessing. And in fact, I ran into uh, one of my, our former members in, in uh, Market Basket in the tomato sauce aisle, and... <laughs> We just dove into conversation. We were there for about 45 minutes just talking. It was like we had never been apart. And that's one of the really awesome things about committing yourself to a local body is the relationships that get intertwined with one another. And I still pray for him. He prays for me. We think about each other. These are things that will be in eternal. You know, we'll come before the Lord celebrating together you know, and just know each other. And so that's my encouragement is get yourself connected. If not here, as Scott says, I really respect how he talks about that. He's like, we're not the only good church. There are other churches out there. If not here, somewhere. Um, and I do believe, and the, the, I, hear, I hear people say, well, that's not biblical. There's nothing about membership <clears throat> in the Bible. Well, true, you might not find the word membership, but that's like saying, that's like talking about your, your flowers and your trees and your shrubs and your grass, and you're not talking about the landscape because the landscape was not, the word landscape was never used. I think it's similar to that. Uh, in the Bible, it's assumed that there was this cohesive, identifiable group of people who are huddled together. There is a huddle aspect and I think 2024 is going to reveal the need for that even more for us to reassure each other that what we believe is right and worth maybe some discomfort, some trial. We need that. We need each other for that. If somebody loses their job because of their convictions, it's the church that's going to come around and say, that's okay, we've got you. Keep going. Don't surrender your Lord for an income. Uh, we need each other for that. We need to stand fast. Um, and as we're gonna hear uh, in a minute, um, and I think 
Second Corinthians, that's the book we're going to be studying for a while. Perfect book to start 2024 with because Paul was in a uh, serious contention with unbelief, with opposition, and he shows just what it is to love Christ in the midst of an environment that's very difficult. So all that to say is, um, please consider that very seriously. I honestly believe that's part of what it means to follow Jesus, is to commit yourself to a visible local body. Um, All right, enough on that. Oh, Lord. Enable me, Lord, to bring your word. And Lord, I do pray for my my lungs, Lord, that you would enable me to have a clear voice. Uh, Lord, that your truth would be able to go forth. And Lord, I just thank you for this past week uh, being able to like, really immerse myself in this letter that you inspired. And thank you, Lord, for teaching me, growing me, and I pray, God, that I would be able to communicate this. Lord, our lives depend on understanding you and loving you and having faith in you and hoping in you. And so much, Lord, you know, so much is against that every day. Sometimes our own hearts are against that. And Lord, I pray that you would enable me to bring these uh, amazing truths, Lord, to your people gathered here. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Glasses. Another new thing. (laughs) Um, So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, um, going from verse 12 all the way down to verse 21 or verse 22. <clears throat> and I'm going to, there's basically three movements, three, uh, three uh, apparent uh, thoughts going on here, but one basic argument. But, so I'm going to start by reading verses 12 through 14. We'll talk about that. Then we'll move on to the next section. I'll read that. We'll talk about that and so forth. So... Let's get started. Now, oh, oh, by the way, I'll be reading from the NIV, if that's helpful for the folks in the back, too, for the, the slides. Now, this is our boast. This is our boast. That's weird. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Interesting way to start. Uh, The Lord Jesus who um, honors the meek and the humble and those who don't brag, he starts with, now this is our boast, right? It's a really an, an odd beginning. 
but we're going to see that it's, it's very appropriate given the context. And he goes on to talk about, and you'll notice in verse um, 14, he talks about this boasting that will take place in the future. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. And that is actually a wonderful picture of the future. That when Jesus returns, we will definitely be boasting in him, right? Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's Paul from 1 Corinthians, also Jeremiah 9. So we'll be boasting in Jesus. We'll be boasting about what he has done. But also, this verse reveals that we'll be boasting in each other. There'll be this sense of celebrating what you have done to get to that place where we're celebrating Jesus. There's this mutual boasting that will take place. Now, as I thought about that, it came clear that there's other places where that's mentioned as well. He, does, he mentions this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and following. He says to the church in Philippi, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Jesus, on the day of Christ, that day, that I did not run or labor, that I did not run or labor for nothing. So notice what he's doing. He's looking forward to that day. He's encouraging them, commanding them, mandating them to do everything without complaining or arguing, that they may be without fault, in order that he might boast in that day that he did not labor for nothing. And I don't think he's so much boasting, looks forward to boasting about himself as he looks forward to boasting about them. That he's teaching them how to be and he's anticipating the day. If we, so that's in the present, looking forward to the future. He's anticipating in the future, looking back now, as they stand vindicated before the Lord saying, you did everything without complaining or arguing. Yes. You are blameless and pure. Yes, praise God. You are without, without fault in the midst of a crooked generation and a brave generation. You held out the word of life until the day of the Lord Jesus. You made it. You did it. And I can hear a, a very spiritual brother saying, oh, no, no, I didn't do anything. Jesus did it. And him saying, of course, you did it. You know, like, yes, that's true. Absolutely, that's true. God works everything, ultimately. The Puritans had a wonderful doctrine, that, a teaching of the primary cause and secondary causes. So the primary cause is God, always. He is the one who works in us what is pleasing to him. But he works those things through secondary causes. The secondary causes are preaching, are prayer, our exhortation, learning. So he doesn't work apart from secondary causes. So do you see how he pulls us into that process where we're very much involved? And at the end of the day, we say, praise God for what you did. 
And God says to us, praise you for what you did. And if you doubt that, look at Matthew 25, where Jesus tells the parable of the talents. And those ta- there's a sort of a trilogy of parables there. There's the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the final judgment. These are motivational parables. He's telling these parables to people who aren't there yet. He's saying, here's how you invest your life in order that you may hear these words. Do you remember? Well done. He looks at people and hears God saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And I can hear a very spiritual brother saying, no, Jesus, you did it. (laughs) And Jesus saying, of course I did. Well done. You did great. (laughs) But this is, we're afraid of that, aren't we? We're, We're so afraid of that. But I think this is so important for us that we come alongside each other and we say, good job. I love how you handled that. Well done. We encourage each other, just like we're bringing up a child. You don't just discipline them for the things they did wrong, right? You encourage them for the things they do right. In both ways, you're, you're, you're channeling them towards a good end, a good purpose. Um, God does the same thing. I love Zephaniah. If you have time to read through this, this is the end of the, the prophets are interesting because it's always, it's always very negative, like... Like Israel's a mess, and, and these are what you know. These are the theologians call covenant lawsuits. A lot of them, like they're bringing charges against Israel for breaking the covenant over and over and over again. But it always finishes with an uptick. Like there will be goodness, um, there will be a redeemed people. And Zephaniah is really interesting because it says, "On that day, which is the day of the Lord, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion.'" Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord, your God, is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. Hear that? God will take great delight in you. You know, when I think of the centurion that Jesus runs into, and Jesus was amazed. So what great faith. Wow. He delighted in him when he ran into Nathaniel. Oh, here's an Israelite without guile. He delighted in him. So here is God delighting in his people. This is the promise of the future. He'll take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. What's that going to be like? God, the God of the universe, singing the God who inspired and enabled Beethoven and Mozart and Taylor Swift. (laughs) I have tried to like Taylor Swift. Um, But I was brought up on other things. He goes on to say, the sorrow for the appointed feasts I will remove from you. They are a burden and a reproach to you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you, and I will rescue the lame and gather those who have been scattered. I will give them praise and honor. 
I will give them praise and honor. So it's not just us praising and honoring God. It's God reciprocating and praising and honoring us. You will be glorified. You will be honored. You will be lifted up. And it will be for good reason. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise. He says it again. This is motivational. We're meant to take this in to say, that's what I want more than anything, is to be praised and honored by God. That's what I want. I will give you praise and honor among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Believe it. Motivational. For them, it was pressed into the old covenant. Take it to heart. Meditate on it. They were faithful old covenant folks. They weren't all lost. There was, there was a remnant of people who pressed into the old covenant and at the same time couldn't wait for the Messiah to come. The consolation of Israel. Um, the idea that the old covenant couldn't, couldn't be kept is just not right. There were many faithful Jews and who welcomed Jesus um, as the fulfillment of the old covenant. But I need to read one more passage, and this is from 1 Peter. Um, Peter's talking about trials. He says, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, in other words, money has no comparison to your faith in Christ. So whatever you need to lose, lose it because it's not worth having if you can't have Jesus at the same time. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. This is a really important verse. The trials that come are proving your faith to be genuine. Right? This is where, this is where they were when he was writing to them. They have not been proved genuine yet. That is, as a final consummation, as a final vindication, as a final justification. They needed to be proved genuine. And so the trials come to prove you, to test you. Um, and it says, uh, goes on to say that you may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. There it is again, the day of the Lord. Now, I know many people say that they think that means uh, praise, glory, and honor will be to Jesus, which I believe it will be. But I don't think that's what Peter's referring to. He's saying, when you're proved genuine, when you come through the tests, on the day of the Lord, it will be revealed that you are genuine, you're real, and you will receive praise, glory, and honor on that day. But they weren't there yet. And I, I want to say this because I feel like this is a huge emphasis in the scriptures. They're written to motivate us, to have us press into God. Because this is where we are now. We are being proved genuine. And that, that text that Nicole quoted earlier from Hebrews is crucial to this. Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And even more, 
Do you guys remember the verse? Yes. Even as the screws get tightened, even as it gets more difficult, do so more and more. We need to be meeting more and more. We need to be encouraging each other more and more. We need to be opening the scriptures more and more. Because these are the secondary causes by which God primarily works to bring you uh, to his throne. To celebrate. You know, and it's going to be, I picture it like, I'm going to use this, it's probably a little hokey, but after the Super Bowl, there's going to be a lot of celebrating. And it's going to be, you did great, awesome, champagne. And I honestly feel like it's going to be something like that. Scott, you did awesome. Mike, you did okay. No, <laughs> I, that's, I'm sorry. That, that was totally, probably an inappropriate joke, but no. I, we've served together. Mike is just like... Um, he is, he's non-duplicitous, I'll put it that way. He is just a, just a guy who loves people, so apparently. So, I want more of what he's got. <laughs> um, so here is Paul, and this is the important thing about writing this letter. Um, the Corinthians aren't there yet. They're in the midst of being proved genuine, and they're in a great struggle. They're in a hard struggle, a hard test. And so let's go back to 2 Corinthians. Where is it? All right. So he begins by looking forward. I just thought that was such a cool thing to, to see that there's this future of mutual boasting that will take place. But it's interesting here, he's, he's not so much doing that as he's boasting about himself. Um, he's boasting about his own spiritual accomplishments, which again, we hear that and we're like, ooh, that's putting us on some scary ground. But he seems to have no qualms about it, which is interesting. But he goes in and he says, now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you in holiness and sincerity that are from God. This is boasting about himself. Now, why is he doing that? And he does it almost 30 times in the letter to the Corinthians. He repeatedly boasts about his ministry. But what this reveals is that he's in a hard test. False apostles, false teachers have come into the church and they're in the midst of winning significant numbers of people to them and away from him. So he's in a fight for their lives. Uh, So he's asserting, as you might, if you're accused of something, he's asserting first and foremost that I am innocent and I have acted with holiness and godliness before you. That might be what you would do, say, if, you, if your spouse accused you of being unfaithful and you hadn't been. The first thing you would do is not provide evidences for your faithfulness. You would assert, I am telling you, I have never been unfaithful to you. That would be the first thing you would do. That's the first thing you would expect an innocent person to do. 
is assert their innocence. And this is what he's doing here. He's asserting it. And the reason is these false teachers have come in, like I said, they're deceiving people. And he says, this, this comes up in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He talks about these false teachers. He said, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may have somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, I believe this reference is, is intentional because what these false teachers are doing is they're leading them to despise Paul. Just as the serpent deceived Eve and led her to despise God in his promise. So he sees this as very, very much the same. They're being, he's, they're being tempted to despise God's provision, which is Paul for the church. So the serpent is acting very, in very much the same way. And we're going to see how they do this in a little bit. But he calls them, he's very candid here. He's not, being, he's not being political at all. He's very candid. He says, these are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. So see how he links that in? These are very much men who are driven, inspired by Satan, to separate the Apostle Paul, who is God's provision for the church, from the church. They lose Paul, they lose Jesus, because Paul is God's provision. It's almost like if Israel loses Moses, they lose God, because Moses was God's provision for Israel. Um, so he's fighting a very hard battle, which is why he boasts about himself so strongly. And he goes on to say, in our, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in re, our relations with you, in holiness and sincerity that are from God. So I don't think he's, notice he says, especially with you. I don't think he's saying we were kind of holy and sincere in the world, <laughs> like we played around with it out there, but with you, we were really sincere. I think what he means is, we, you saw our sincerity more than anybody. You experienced our holiness more than anybody. And you know, when you experience someone's faithfulness, it really obligates you to trust them, right? The more you experience their goodness, the more you should believe in their goodness. It's like this, there's this obligation. So he's really shaming them here. You've experienced our faithfulness and our sincerity. And there's an interesting word in the NIV. They kind of, sometimes the NIV over-interprets to, to, help, to help us. I guess, and it does help sometimes. But here you have holiness and sincerity that are from God in the NIV. Does anybody have the ESV? What does that say? Anybody have that open? Simplicity, right? So he's, this is a, an important nuance. He's saying we've conducted our ways with you, our relations with you in simplicity and sincerity. Now, he doesn't mean simplicity that everything we taught is simple, because even Peter says some things Paul says are hard to understand. But he's with simplicity, that is, not duplicity. What we taught, we were, what, we, what you saw is what you got. 
We didn't teach out of both sides of our mouths. We have words for that, like two-faced or fork-tongued. You know, this idea that we say one thing one moment and another thing another moment. No. They taught with simplicity and sincerely. And this came from God. For, then it says, we have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For, we do not write you anything that you cannot read or understand. Everything was meant to be understood. Every time they taught, it was meant to feed the understanding. Um, This is really important because worldly ways of talking can somehow confound people, right? It can be confusing intentionally. And sometimes, have you ever listened to a speaker and that sounded really sophisticated and it's like, wow, that was really wild. I didn't understand a word, but... It was great, you know? (laughs) And what do you come away? You come away impressed with the person. It's almost like I'm impressing you. And I feel like that's probably, this is a little bit of a a shade on these false teachers who were trained. He says later that these are trained speakers. And so, and rhetoric was a big deal in the first century. It was like a, you know, being a a skilled rhetorician who could spin out phrases and impress people with your, with your wording. So very likely that's what these people were like. And maybe at times confounding people. But they'd come away impressed. I don't know, but hey, pretty smart, right? Um, that's a worldly way of being. Um, and, and it can be like a false profundity. Like it just sounds profound. I remember reading about John Lennon and uh, when he found out that they were studying his songs in school, the Beatles songs in schools, trying to get at their meaning, he decided to have a little fun. So he wrote, I am the walrus. <laughs> you guys remember that one? I am the walrus, I am the Eggman, cuckoo cuckoo. I am he as you are he as we are me and we are all together. See how they run like pigs from a gun? See how they fly? I'm crying. Sitting on a flake, Waiting for the van to come. Corporation t-shirts, stupid bloody Tuesday. Man, you've been a naughty boy. Let your face grow long. I am the egg man. They are the egg man. I am the walrus. Cuckoo, cuckoo. And he, see, he wanted to see what they would say it meant. And so they poured over these things. Oh, what is this? Sitting on a cornflake. What does that mean? <laughs> and for him, this was entertaining. It was like, do you see what they think it means? It means nothing. <laughs> it just had fun. They had fun with words. It's not serious. Um... And sometimes we can use words in technical language to overpower and coerce. I remember sitting um, in front of an insurance salesman with my wife. This was, she'll remember this. This had a deep impression on me. He, he was going on and on, all these technical terms, um, depreciation and, uh, you know, I don't know. What are some technical insurance terms? But they were, just, <laughs> they were just spinning out, you know. And Lynn was getting it. She's an accountant. She was like, okay, yeah, that makes, that makes sense. I'm like, I have no idea what this guy's telling me. 
And I think I had that look, you know, where your mouth is a little open and your eyes just sort of get a little shifty. And I'm not responding correctly at the correct things. And I, I think he saw it because he would talk to her, right? She's getting it. And look at me and kind of smile. Like this was entertaining for him. And I remember, I just remember thinking, all I, I wasn't thinking about what he's saying. I was thinking, does he know I have no idea what he's saying? <laughs> so then you come out of it, you close your mouth a little bit, and you start nodding. You know, it's like, I got to get. But the feeling, I actually came away upset by that experience because the feeling I had was that he had no interest in me understanding any of it. He wanted to make the sale. So he was overpowering me, coercing me, to just submit to what he's saying. This is a worldly way of being. Paul is saying, we did not do that. We are not doing that. And it's very important when you open your Bible, the, the first premise you need to have is, I can understand this. It is written for me to understand. And I've heard many people say, I don't understand the Bible. You, no, you can understand it. And some of it you have to work at, some more than others. But you can understand, it's given to you to understand. I'm going to say this, even unbelievers understand the Bible. Even unbelievers. They understand the concept of the virgin birth. They understand the concept of resurrection. They just don't accept it. Right? They reject it. But you have to have a concept to reject. So even they will be held to account as being able to understand what they're reading. It's in plain language. So we, that's the first thing we have to understand as we sit down and we read the scriptures, that it is understandable. And it's crucial that we understand. Um, and this again is Philippians chapter 1, Paul's prayer uh, for the Philipp Philippian church in the midst of their struggle in the midst of being proven genuine, he's praying for them because that's God's secondary means by which he works primarily. That's why prayer is so important. God works through it. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more by knowledge or in knowledge, could be by as well, in or by knowledge and depth of insight. That is, he's praying that our love abounds by our knowledge in depth of insight. So he's connecting love with knowledge. So many times we separate those two. Like we have a heart faith and a mind faith. These things are intertwined for the Apostle Paul. Your love grows and becomes sharper and more accurate and better used the more you know. Because he's saying here, um, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more by knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern or understand what is best. It may be pure and blameless, here we go again, until the day of Christ. That's our task. That's his prayer. And this is so important, because apart from the will and understanding of God, how do we love people? Do we know how? How do you love somebody who's experiencing gender dysphoria? The world has a way. How are we to do it? We must be proved genuine. Will we love them? 
the way that God wants us to love them. How do we love somebody who's experiencing same-sex attraction? The world has a way. How are we going to do it? We must be proved genuine and maybe suffer. But that doesn't matter because until the day of Christ, when we stand before the judgment and God vindicates us finally and completely, that's all that's going to matter. In fact, everything we go through, and we're going to see this later on in 2 Corinthians, will be for our glory. It's almost like a soldier looking back on the hardships of battle with his comrades and saying, yeah, that was hard, but we did it. Yeah, that was really brutal, but we made it through. keep losing my place. Back to 2 Corinthians. No, he, there, there's something they're lacking because he says, and I hope that as you have understood us in part, he says this intentionally, you have partially understood us, you have not fully understood who we are for you. And just as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that's what he's working toward in this letter. I want you to understand fully that you can boast of us. Right now, you're being very critical of us. You're questioning us. But I'm working toward you being able to boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now we see um, what he's being charged with. I think we get a hint of it right here. This is at verses 15. I'll read verses 15 through 17. This is what the false teachers are saying about him. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way. So he wanted to visit them twice. Now what we'll see later on, and he explains, this will be probably the next message, but he explains later on, that he didn't go. He said he was going to go on his way to Macedonia, visit them, and then visit them a second time. He didn't. He bypassed Corinth and went on to Macedonia. That provided the space for the false apostles to come in and accuse Paul of being duplicitous, of being double-minded, of being frivolous, of saying one thing but meaning another. Do you see how that would do that? And if you don't have any information, that provides even more opportunity. I think we're all tempted toward being negative if we lack information. I think it's kind of a defense mechanism, right? We assume the worst sometimes. And so they're taking advantage of this and feeding the minds of the Corinthian church that Paul is not who he says he is. He's duplicitous. And this is how he says, uh, when I planned this, did I do it lightly? Okay, so that would be one of the things. You do things lightly. He just says, yeah, he's going to show up, and he doesn't. Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? Now, these are likely Old Testament sort of oath, oracle things you would say to mean, say you really mean it. So, or do I say yes, yes, but I'm thinking no, no? 
You know, I'm saying I'm going to visit, but I know that I'm not going to. Either one is a worldly way of communicating, and he's being charged with this. But notice what he says next. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. Notice what he says there. As surely as God is faithful, so are we. He's linking his faithfulness to God himself. Again, another bold assertion. And he believes that he's an expression of God's faithfulness to the church. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. In other words, it has always been we are for you. We are building you up. We're not lording it over your faith. We're working with you for your joy. That has always been us. Paul sees himself as an expression of God's truthfulness, of being faithful to the Corinthians. He says something like this later on when he says, God made him, this will be probably familiar, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Who is that? Jesus, right? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. What was the purpose? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a powerful statement. But what he's saying there is, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us in order that we might become expressions of God's righteousness in the world. That was the point of Jesus' death. The ultimate point. No doubt, it's for the forgiveness of sins. Absolutely. We cannot be forgiven apart from the blood of Jesus. But the end result, that's the means by which the end is to be accomplished. That is, you are to become an expression of God's righteousness in the world. That's the goal of the cross. Peter says the same thing. I'm not going to go there for sake of time, but we need, to, we need to realize this. The cross is not just about us being set free from our guilt, although it is in crucial. It is meant to produce in us the righteousness that God himself has. And Paul sees that, he says that about himself here in the apostles, but also it's us as well. Um, and Paul like, is being proved genuine in the writing of this letter because he's faithfully working on behalf of the church. So we must be the same. We must be genuinely for each other. We must be expressions of the righteousness and faithfulness of God for each other. And in everywhere we go in the world. So what does this mean? When you engage in politics, do so. Expressing the righteousness of God. Let your speech be holy, sincere. Vote for the people. Acknowledge Jesus and vote for the people who are going to advocate most effectively for the cause of God in the world. Not by personality. When, you, when you're in your home, husbands and wives, express God's righteousness to each other. Be yes for each other. Always, not duplicitous. Parents, be expressions of God's righteousness for your children, bringing them up in the teaching and admonition of the Lord. 
have them feel the pungency of God's righteousness in the home, that it's a happy home, well-ordered, away from the chaos of the world. You see, everything is religious. Jesus' lordship isn't limited to here or to church activities. Teaching in a college is a religious experience. Going to college is a religious experience. Everything is spiritual. Eating is spiritual. Do we eat to the glory of God? Do we celebrate the goodness of what God has provided? Do we say, Lord, you are so good. This roast beef sandwich, I had a pastrami sandwich at um, the Washington Hotel. You guys have been up there? My father likes to gather the family and so he buys lunch and the thing was like this. So good. And my father was really cool. He had, a, had me pray, which he's not, at this point, a believer, praying for him diligently. But we're in the, in the mountains and beautiful food. And it's just, what an what a amazing, that's a worship experience. That's a time to give thanks and to give praise to God. And I'm so glad he asked me to pray. Um, everything is spiritual. Everything comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Um, does that mean we're going to um, believe the same things about everything? No. No, we're not. But that becomes a beautiful expression as well. And I'm going I'm to give this example. And I'm not going to name names. These, these two people will, re, will remain anonymous. And here's an example of how I think this works. Because let me make this other point. Because somebody might be thinking... Oh, sir, are you saying that I always have to be perfectly aligned with absolute truth in order to be received on the day of the Lord? Do I have to be perfect? And I would say, no, you just have to think you are. That sounds weird, doesn't it? <laughs> like, I, there's this teacher I really respect. He's written volumes like this thick. And, you know, he's just an amazing scholar, just loves the Lord. But he said, I'm probably wrong about 20% of everything I believe. And he said, I just don't know what that 20% is. And I thought, that's really good. Like, he, here's the point. He would not knowingly misrepresent the truth. He would not knowingly not be aligned with absolute truth. He would do ignorant. He may be ignorantly aligned with that. So that's the point I'm saying. You must think you are in, with integrity. God knows the heart. He knows if you're having integrity or not. And this really comes to, comes to bear in our life. Let me give you an example. These two gentlemen in the church, they shall remain unnamed, had a debate. And guess what? It was about the COVID vaccine. Oh boy. Let's have some fun. <laughs> so one gentleman, one, one, one guy was like, you know what? I'm not getting it. In fact, I feel like I feel like it's not disobeying God to get the vaccine, but my governor is disobeying God mandating that I get the vaccine. Do you see? So I, I hold to I hold to Romans 13. That is the governor is he needs to be under the authority of the Massachusetts Constitution which prevents a governor from dictating medical care as mandatory to his constituents. That would be unusual search and seizure of a person. So he's breaking 
Romans 13 by mandating, right, because he's breaking the Massachusetts Constitution, which was written by John Adams and ensured certain liberties. So that, and, and I don't believe, and I've done my research, I don't believe I'm unsafe to other people. Uh, the other man in this debate said, look, I think you really should get vaccinated. And here's why. Because of Romans 13. <laughs> it says there to obey the authorities. And you're supposed to love your neighbor. And I've done my research, and I think that you're safer to other people if you do get vaccinated. So who is right? Well, the first guy, obviously. No. Uh, the point is, you can have two people on two sides of an issue whose consciences are clear before the Lord, and they hold to different things. That is very possible. Uh, C.S. Lewis talked about you could have a German soldier and an allied soldier, and they shoot each other in battle, and they both go to heaven and praise God. Like, they're both citizens of another country. They're living faithfully for the Lord in their context. So here's the point. Your conscience must be clear. You cannot willingly distort reality to fit your situation. So I believe both will be vindicated before God as faithful to what they believe. Does that mean they were both right? No. Somebody's more right than somebody else. And God will, he's, he's going to sort that. Right? That's going to be, we're going to all be taught quite a bit, right? Like this is, 1 Corinthians talks about that, that some things will be singed, right? Will be burned as wood, hay, and stubble. And I think he's talking about things that we have believed incorrectly. Um, but you're not lost. Um, so, and here's another one. This will illustrate, this is illustrating two people who can believe different things and they're both good with God. Um, another one could be, I was at seminary. This is a negative part of it. I was in seminary debating with another seminarian, which is what you do at seminary. And we were talking about baptism. And he's a Presbyterian, so they believe in infant baptism. He was being paid, uh, his schooling was being paid for by the Presbyterian church. And so we're debating baptism. I'm starting to persuade him that believer's baptism and immersion is the proper biblical way to do baptism. And he, he's, I could see it in his face, a little bit of panic. He covered his ears, and he said, no, and he walked away. Now, that's tragic. Because what you have there is a future minister of the gospel who's going to willingly, if he has come to the conclusion that believer's baptism is possibly the correct way, and he goes in and does something else, he's distorting the word of God. That's very different. His conscience would not be clear. Now, I don't know what this gentleman ended up doing. I have no idea. But that just struck me as how sad that is. That as people of God with the Holy Spirit, we should want truth. Give me the truth. But money was probably the thing. Like, he's obligated to the Presbyterian Church now. And he, so he didn't want to hear anything different. That's a spiritual moment. That's duplicity, not simplicity. Um, so let's, let's come to a close here. Paul is in a great struggle, working hard for the, Ephesians, uh, the Corinthian church. Um,
It's interesting how he closes up this section. You can, you can just sense the rest he has in Christ, even as he struggles. He says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, which is a profound statement that we could spend time going over. How all the promises find their fulfillment in Jesus from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Now it is God who makes both us. He's the primary cause. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. So you see, he's kind of settling back. He's recognizing that it's God who makes me and you stand firm in Christ. So when we come before Jesus, we'll say, you did it. And that'll be true. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Literally, as a deposit, as a guarantee. So he has put his spirit in our hearts. That spirit is a down, is a down payment on the future gushing of the spirit who will recreate the whole universe and set us in the midst of it in this paradise existence. What we experience now as believers to get truthful to each other. It's what I, what I call a relational paradise before the actual paradise. We are, to, we, are to bring, we are to create relational paradises in which there is peace and trust and rest. As we experience the spirit as a down, posit, a down payment or deposit guaranteeing that future consummation that is to come when we celebrate like a Super Bowl celebration, pouring champagne and praising our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you just wanting to be proven genuine, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that no matter what comes, cause us to be faithful, truthful, simple, devoted to you and each other. And Lord, I do pray as well that you would move people who have not been connected, tangibly connected to a local body, that they would do so as an act of worship. Thank you, Jesus, for all you do and for this word. In Jesus' name, amen.